Welcome to The Essentials Podcast, the show that brings you thought-provoking educational content from the world of human biology and culture. In this episode, I'd like to talk about the science behind making a good drawing, and also about how to get through those feelings that can hold you back from creating. Those of you who've been listening to me for a while know that on top of being a human biology student, I am also an artist and I love being an artist in STEM because taking courses like psychology and courses in neuroscience that allow you to really learn about the science behind neural processing and perception to classes like sociology and art history and any anthropology courses that can teach us about the way that we give art meaning or how we view art. What does it mean to us? Is it metaphorical, symbolic? Are we placing our own meanings on it? How are we interpreting things as a human race? And it's all of those things together that really remind me how important that art is and how incredible our brains are because art is only possible because of the functions of our brains. And it's honing in on those functions and tweaking the way that we know how to do things that helps us to be able to produce better drawings or better content. And now that I know how the brain functions and how perception works and what parts of my brain are being used when I'm drawing, I can really apply that to my whole drawing process and it's really led me to become a lot more analytical about my sketches and I'm being really intentional about every mark I'm making on the paper. So I'm going to get into how I came to do that by giving you guys some really cool neurobiological information about observation. And then I'm going to talk to you about how we can channel what we see in front of us into a really good representative sketch using a theory from the world of psychology. Even if you aren't an addictive sketcher like I am, you could think about trying these things because what I'm going to be talking about can apply to anybody, not just our well-seasoned artists out there. When you sit down to draw from life, you have to forget what you know things to be. You're starting with a blank piece of paper. Why not mentally start with a blank slate too? For clarity and openness, because you can't let perfectionism or your preconceived symbol or image of something hold you back from the art of experimentation. And that's why science and art really go hand in hand because art is a science and science explains art. So, you know, they're perfect for each other, but you have the freedom to play with different lines and angles and shapes. You just have to alter your mindset. So I do a lot of plain air painting and that's really just the manner of painting outside. But the reason why people do this is because you're working directly from life and you have to rely on a direct observation of things like shape and color. It forces you to. You're not able to zoom in on stuff like you are on a phone. You're not able to see very minute details and minuscule architectural details on things like buildings or things like chairs or telephone wires. It forces you to think about what is in your plane of sight? What's the main focus? What would your attention be drawn to if you were a viewer of this painting? And it forces you to be really aware of colors and shadows and where things are and what the shape of things are, rather than getting really bogged down with fine details. And now that I've been doing this type of drawing, this method, for a long time, I really have seen in myself a heightened sense of observation. I'm analyzing the shapes around me. I'm not so much noticing those small details, but the slant, the curve, the, the mountain ranges, the types of edges that are there, they're very natural. I'm looking at those. I love moving into that headspace too because I'm giving myself the chance to think like I'm seeing everything around me for the first time. I'm not tied to anything. I'm kind of using the scientific method in a way which allows me to put analytical observation into practice. So I'm gonna further talk about how 
observation works in our brains. So observational learning is crucial to human development. When I talk about observing here, I'm talking about putting our senses to use to find out the properties of the things around us. Seeing is such an incredible sensory experience. It allows us to view the world around us and, and then build a giant visual library of all these things we've seen. And there are a lot of things that have to occur to start the process of vision. The very first and simplest is that light has to fall on our eye. So our eyes kind of work like cameras. The light gets let in, but it's filtered a little bit. And then it starts the process of transduction. And I do talk about sunlight a lot on this podcast because while this can happen with any light, sunlight is a very significant factor in the way that humans operate. We need light just like we need truth and a way, like a direction. So light is very important to us. I like the way that the physicsclassroom.com explains this whole process of the beginning of transduction. They say that we are able to see because light from an object can move through space and reach our eyes. And then once it reaches our eyes, signals are then sent to our brain through a very extensive visual system and cranial nerves and everything, which I love, but I'm not going to like nerd out about that right now because I could talk about it for way too long. And then our brain will decipher that information in order to detect the appearance, the location, and the movement of the objects that we are seeing. And this is why if an object doesn't have any light being reflected from it, if it's not reflective, it isn't going to be visible to us. This is why a lot of us have poor night vision because things just are dark. The sun is down and humans have poor night vision compared to other animals because we don't have this tissue called the tapetum lucidum, which is what reflects light back through the retina and that increases the light that's available to photoreceptors. We don't have that and we're not nocturnal. So our typical daytime vision is cone mediated vision. We don't really need to rely on our rods that much, even though we have more of them than cones. We're usually using our cones, but they need bright light in order to function, in order for us to see things clearly. I'm gonna run through just a brief anatomy of what makes up the eye, and then from there I'll continue the talk about how to make a good drawing from this. I promise I will get there. So first we have the iris, and that is what regulates the amount of light that enters your eye. It's the little colored visible part of your eye right in front of the lens. And then the light enters through a central opening called the pupil. And we know that's the circular opening. It's black, or we see it as black, in the center of the iris through which the light passes into the lens. So that's behind the pupil. And the pupil as you've probably seen in people, can be very dilated or it can constrict down. And that's the widening and narrowing of it. And that's controlled by the iris. And then we have the cornea and that's the transparent circular part of the front of the eyeball. It refracts the light that's entering the eye onto the lens. And then that's what focuses the light onto the retina. Then we have the actual lens, which is a transparent structure located behind the pupil and it's enclosed in a thin transparent capsule and it helps to refract the incoming light and then focus it on the retina. And there are other things working here too, like the ciliary body and the choroid and the sclera and all this other stuff. But I just want to talk about the retina a little more because I've mentioned it quite a few times, but it is a sensitive layer that lines the interior of the eye. It's composed of light sensitive cells and those are the rods and cones that I mentioned, those photoreceptors. 
And just to give you a definition of those two photoreceptors, the rods and cones, rods are the ones that are necessary for seeing in dim light, and cones are the ones that are necessary for us to see a sharp and accurate image. So they're essential for acute vision. That's what that means. And these are what give us the sensitivity to colors because they're, they're color sensitive and they can pick up the wavelengths of different primary colors. And then when we see other colors that are not primary, they're really just combinations of all those primary colors being and this is what our impressionist artists really had down to a science. They were really, really into this stuff, and that's how they made their paintings so believable, without having to add a whole bunch of details. And then, of course, I couldn't continue this discussion without bringing up the optic nerve. It's our second cranial nerve, which we abbreviate as CN, Roman numeral 2, and that's responsible for transmitting visual information. And it only contains afferent fibers, and those are sensory fibers that are carrying information towards the brain versus the efferent fibers which are taking information away from the brain so if you hear afferent think sensory and i don't know if you're ever going to come across that again but if you do you'll know i think it's very interesting and also i did mention that the optic nerve is cranial nerve two so we have 12 cranial nerves they each come in a pair and of the 12, six of them are actually dedicated to vision. They innervate the motor, sensory, and autonomic structures in the eyes. And you don't really have to know what those are for the sake of this podcast, but if you were ever curious, it is something really interesting to read about. So that was kind of a very brief summary of all the things that are going on in order to make vision possible. But all of these parts are working together to help us perceive things like form, color, and depth. And those things are all key factors to be aware of as an artist. I'm sure that some of you might be vaguely familiar with the Gestalt theory of perception. Uh, if you're not, that's totally okay because I'm going to talk about it a lot. But it might come back to you if you've ever studied psychology. Um, but if not, this is a theory that suggests that a whole is more than the sum of its parts. And that just means that we're thinking of things as a meaningfully organized whole. So we're not taking all the little details out of it, but we're just looking at everything together. The classic elements of the Gestalt theory are similarity, continuation, closure, proximity, figure slash ground, and symmetry and order. So thinking about this in terms of art and observation, we're just saying that complex scenes can be reduced to simple shapes, and this comes from how our eyes work, the biology of vision and everything that I just talked about. When you look around, say at something like a tree, we see a tall stick with a shrubby shape on top. We don't see every individual branch or every little notch on the tree and every single leaf as an individual or the bud of each leaf. But as we grow and we learn about the different pieces that make up the object we look at, we will add more information to the image that we know. Like we can see the tree and we know all of those little parts are there, but we just see the whole when we're viewing it. And the key to drawing is to stick with the principle of the Gestalt theory, reduce complexity. And this will speak louder in your paintings. Why? Because our miraculous brains will fill in the rest of all of that visual information through our eyes and their mechanisms, and then through what we already know to be true about the object. And I think with artists, even if they're not aware of this theory, they're practicing it because this is how we view the world. And it isn't something that only artists have the ability to use. 
believe it or not, you used it as a child before we gained deep, complex, and minute details about life in our little information banks in our brains, we kind of only saw like this. So let's think back to like kindergarten or whatever you were in as a child where you were asked to draw pictures of things, draw your favorite animal or draw a scene that you love and say you drew a dog or a tree or a house. Those objects in question were always basic, bold shapes. And through observation, we did our best to transcribe an image using the symbols that we knew to be true. We didn't overthink it. And without knowing, we were applying this whole principle of simplification. And after learning more as an artist, sometimes we get bogged down with wanting to include information in our work and the pieces become a little bit too busy or overworked, which is something that I used to struggle with. I really wanted to make my pieces believable. I wanted to capture everything. And in doing that, I was adding a lot of detail that I wasn't really happy with in the finished product. I just, it looked a little bit too busy for me and everybody's art preference is different, but I do like how a more simple painting looks just with really good shapes and good colors. You don't really need all of that detail, but you know, to each his own. But it's so cool to think about how when you learn about drawing, especially the techniques, sometimes you lose the ability to simplify because now you have all this knowledge about technical things and anatomy and everything else. But when we're children, we didn't have all of that knowledge and yet we could simply just observe and then draw what we were observing. Children are so skilled in that area. Retraining our brains while we draw or paint to be able to simplify like a child is how you can truly take your art a step further. So as I mentioned briefly, the Impressionists used this whole method. They focused on light, they focused on color, and they focused on shape. They weren't trying to include every single tiny detail, only on the things that we generally perceive on a normal daily basis. So... This is just the act of summarizing things, basically, and then letting our brains do the rest. You know, there's actually a method of psychotherapy that uses this gestalt principle, and it's based on helping people become more free and aware of their surroundings, as well as focusing on the present instead of the past or the future, and it can lead to increased self-direction. And I'm not saying in any way that being more knowledgeable about all the moving parts of what makes things up is a bad thing and that you shouldn't do it because obviously it can be really helpful in a drawing if you want to do anatomical drawings where you want to learn about bone shapes and musculature in order to make figure drawings look more natural. But I am just talking about a looser approach when it comes to getting down the basic shapes of a complex or busy environment onto paper without overthinking. Because looking at all these little things, cracks in the sidewalk, um, people walking by, like cars, the very the details on the cars themselves and other little things can be a little bit overwhelming and it can be intimidating because you're just thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, how am I going to draw all these little things? I don't know how to draw this shape. Leave it out. It doesn't need to be there. Just focus on the meaningful things. And that's what we did when we were children. If we drew our house, we drew what was meaningful to us, what we noticed the most. There are really so many ways that we can apply different sciences to art to add more expression and intrigue to the world around us. Now that I've talked about things like cones and rods, there are some really interesting ways that you could add focus effects on paintings that make an image seem more believable to us because I was just talking about how cones need bright light and things that are a little bit closer to us are sharper in focus. 
And then when things are far away from us, and I'm sure you've noticed this, they lose the saturation of their color. So distant objects appear to have less intense colors, and that's due to the scattering of light by the Earth's atmosphere, because the further away something is from you and you're still trying to view it, the more atmosphere you have to look through to view that object. And that's why as things move away from the viewer, they become cooler, lighter, and a little bit duller. Another trick to use when you're trying to make something look realistic and it's white, but it's in the shade, white can actually look darker than something that's black if it's in sunlight, in very bright sunlight, actually. And I would encourage you guys to check out one of my favorite artists, James Gurney. He has a lot of stuff on this topic and about how light plays into the way that we see colors. And he's really interesting. I love to watch his videos on YouTube. And you can also play around with things like the central focus because when you are focusing centrally on an object, it's going to appear sharper due to the cones being way more concentrated in the center of your eye and the rods in the periphery. And there's a really awesome video on YouTube by a creator, um, Goblish, and I hope I, I probably butchered that actually, but it's G-O-B-L-I-S-H and he's really amazing. And it's about the psychology of drawing and it gets into some really fascinating neurobiology and I suggest if you're into this stuff, then you definitely need to watch it. But something he said that I love is that we have to ignore preconceived symbols of what we think we've seen, which get established by the mechanisms in the left hemisphere of our brain. And that is exactly what's happening. Our two brain hemispheres work together in this really incredible way where they cross information from left to right, and that's something called contralateral control. The left brain, with all of its knowledge, can sometimes get in the way of our right brain when we're trying to create a drawing that's a lot more simplified, because the right brain is all about the unknown, the creativity, and the intrigue. And learning causes shifts and changes in the ways that our brains work, and this can happen because of the capacity of our brains to recalibrate, referred to as um, plasticity. So the left brain, after drawing and drawing and drawing things over and over, you start to know what they are and you start to know them really, really well. And then all that information is just stored in the bank of the left brain and it takes over. Like when you're drawing, oh, you know, it should have this and this in it. But if you're adding all of those things, sometimes they can be frustrating because then you're trying to make sure that everything looks perfect instead of just focusing on the shape and focusing on everything else like you've never seen it before. And that's for the right brain to do. And, and if you want to relearn how to draw just off of basic shapes and just drawing things that are unknown, shapes that you've never drawn before, you can train your right brain. And you can do this by flipping a reference photo upside down and then trying to draw it. And that allows the right brain to take over, forcing us to focus on basics like the line, the form, the shape, and the depth. This is Gestalt. And another thing you can do to train your right brain to take over when you draw is to look more at the object than the paper. And that's really tricky because I've tried it and it's hard. And be loose with it. These things don't have to be immaculate. You don't need to show these drawings or sketches to anybody. It doesn't need to be a masterpiece. It's just practicing to get your brain a little bit more familiarized with seeing things just as the shape alone without all of that information you already know being poured into the drawing also. And there are other little things you can do when you're drawing to 
make the process a little bit faster and to keep yourself from focusing for too long on one little thing and that's to use line and you don't even have to pick your pen up off the paper and then when you want to make things look lively and like they're breathing we would use organic lines there and that just means a line that is wonky a little bit bumpy and it's natural and it's just an uncut scene that can imply life on the contrary Straight and artificial lines can imply non-living things like buildings, things that are man-made and angular, like the perfect edges that you see in a metropolitan skyline. Things in nature are not rigid like that. Think of people, like how our hair moves and how the shapes of leaves look or how flowing water looks. And I just want to mention that anybody can do this. This is not something that you have to go to art school or be a well-seasoned artist to do. Dropping the idea of perfectionism and superfine detail is not only freeing, like that psychotherapy I mentioned, but it forces you to really use the right side of your brain when it comes to art and strengthen your observational skills. It's always helpful to be able to summarize information and make something digestible for the person seeing or reading your product. You capture what is meaningful, and that's what really makes an impression. Now, I've been putting the Gestalt principle to use for a really long time without knowing, but I started to pay a lot more attention to not paying attention to everything, ironically, when I would talk to my high school art teacher about drawing. And I was probably 15 then, and as I continued to do art, I continued to use this method. And then it became like second nature. And then in college, when I was taking one of my favorite elective classes ever, which was Survey of Art in the Western World too, I became so captivated by the way that those painters observed the world around them that I began to read into it a lot further and I eventually wrote a paper on it but now I understand the simplifying part can actually be really hard to get used to all over again after all that knowledge and somebody who talked about this was Picasso he famously said it took me my whole life to learn how to draw like a child and ever since I read that quote it has stuck with me and it really sums up all the content that I talked about in this episode to recall, do you remember how I was saying that the Gestalt theory is about looking at a whole and then put into psychotherapy, it aims to focus on the present? I thought it was interesting that Picasso also said that the art that is not in the present will never be. And I was kind of making connections between that and how when you're drawing, you can't be thinking too retrospectively. The best and most basic way to sketch is to be present, be loose, and be spontaneous like a child. The sketches may not be perfect, but the process will feel so much more lively and so much more natural. And I hope that this has inspired you guys to try drawing like this and to use these protocols in your own artistic journey. And being an artist is a way of being. Be open to failure. Don't focus too much on the outcome because then you're limiting yourself by what you think it needs to look like when you're done and that limits the creative process and induces creative art blocks. So next time you're out there trying to do a nice sketch or a drawing and you're trying to apply these things, remember not to overthink because overthinking can be really detrimental to the loose and fluid parts of creating something because you don't know what it's going to look like when you're done and that's the whole fun of creating. It's a process and you don't want to hold yourself back. So. And I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of The Essentials. I know it's been a little while since I've put out any new episodes, but that's just because my classes are taking up a lot of my time, which is fine. I really love all the content of it. I'm happy with all of my courses, but I don't have as much free time. I still plan on releasing new episodes 
every other week, but I'll try to get them out as often as I can. When I have a good idea, I'll write everything down because I love to share all of this really interesting scientific information with everybody else as much as I can. So thank you so much for the listen. I always appreciate it. And don't forget to check out all of our other great and talented podcasters that are also here on the BMG Network.